You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Please open your Bibles to the book of Acts, and please stand if you are able to. Our reading this morning is taken from Acts 2, beginning in verse 42, and also 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 through 15. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech, in knowledge and all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you be burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, thanks, David, for preaching an amazing giving sermon in our announcements. He had three points, and I was very tempted just to be <laughs> call it good and, and move to worship. I didn't know that was happening, but that was, that was very helpful, very uh, complimenting to our time this morning. We'd like to welcome you, and uh, like to welcome our guests this morning. Uh, we are moving toward uh, the end of our series, Belong, and uh, the question that we've been working through these last six weeks is, what does it mean to Belong. Where, where should we belong? How do we belong? Let's think about this this week. In a world that is experiencing massive amounts of instability, there's a lot of deconstruction happening, and a lot of times for good reason. Uh, everything is being questioned right now. The, things are just very shaky. The world seems very chaotic. We, as God's people, are endeavoring to clarify our commitments and really attach our lives, our personhood, our families 
to the one institution that Jesus himself promised to build and assured his people that even the gates of hell would not prevail against. We're endeavoring to like attach ourselves to the stability of the one institution that Jesus says, I'm going to build this, and it's the church. What we've been looking at is ways to express belonging and live as faithful members of the church. What I want to mention first and foremost is belonging is a matter of God's grace and rescue. Christ came to bring us to God. It is a matter of God's doing. We simply believe. We entrust our souls to God's good care. These are not things that we do in order to belong to God and his family. This is very important that you know that. These things that we've been mentioning, the things that we're going to be talking about today, these are not things that we do in order for God to love us and for, to make us a part of his family. These are things that we do because we belong. These are the things that we do as children of God that belong and reinforce that belonging. And as we've done in the past weeks, what we're doing is we're revisiting Acts 2 again, where we get this very clear illustration of what belonging looks like within the Christian community. And what we see today in verse 45 is this. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. What we're seeing here is a church willingly, uh, giving willingly, sacrificially, and generously to the work of God's kingdom through the church. The question is why? Why would they do such a thing? Why would we Anyone really express themselves in this sort of way? Why would they sacrifice in such a significant way? What we see through the Bible is that God, in his grace, had moved in their lives. They received the gift of the Holy Spirit in a way that changed their lives, that changed their hearts. And now this is a community that simply wants to invest in what God is doing in the world and in their community. Similarly, what we see here in uh, the letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is speaking about the churches in Macedonia, using them as an example to this church in Corinth. And we hear this, and we read this in verse 2, for in severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. An author named Stephen Covey uh, coined this idea, maybe you're familiar with it, and it's the scarcity mentality versus the abundance mentality. The scarcity mentality versus the abundance mentality. The, the scarcity mentality is what he describes as a lose-win paradigm. That there is only so much to go around. So much resources, so much relationships, so much recognition to go around. So if someone else succeeds, that means that I'm not succeeding. If someone else succeeds, that means I am jealous. If someone else is recognized, that means I am threatened. I'm threatened, especially if I'm, uh, the other person is recognized in my presence. I feel like, well, what's wrong with me? What am I doing wrong? Why are, they being, why are they getting the praise? Why are they getting the recognition? Why are they getting anything? The scarcity mentality causes us to see someone else's gain as our own personal loss. People with this mentality, he says, have a very difficult time sharing recognition and credit, power, and profit. They also have a very hard time being genuinely happy for the success of other people. But abundance, the abundance mentality, on the other hand, he describes like this. He says it flows out of a deep inner sense of personal worth and security. It's the paradigm that there is plenty out there and enough to spare for everyone. It results in sharing of prestige and recognition and profits and decision-making. It opens possibilities, it opens options, and it opens creativity. 
The thing that we need to remember today is that when Jesus spoke to his disciples in John chapter 10, he said that he came into the world that we might have life, and not just life in general, not just life in moderation, not just life status quo, but life abundantly. The prospect for those who dwell with God through faith in Jesus Christ is that we have been seated at the table of God. We've been seated at his table, and as Psalm 23 tells us, that as the cup comes and passes before us, that cup is a cup that overflows. Our cup overflows. God lavishes his love, his grace, and his blessing upon his people. What we need to remember this morning is scarcity does not mark the child of God. Abundance does. Abundance is always the mark of the child of God. Now, I know what the questions you're asking now. But recognize what the Apostle Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians. That even in times of severe affliction, and even in times of extreme poverty, a kind of poverty that probably most of us will never know and experience, according to the Word of God, those people, the people of God, are still a people of abundance. Are still a people of abundance. But the challenge for the, for the, the child of God, the, the Christian, that we face is that we live between two worlds. Right now, if you're a Christian, you live between two worlds. The Bible tells us that we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. There we are, positionally, before God. That we have this rich, spiritual inheritance that is ours. Ephesians 1, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours in Christ Jesus. That's in your account. That is in your account. And yet we are sojourners as exiles living in the world around around us. See, by and large, we have been shaped by a culture that has very much been shaped by the scarcity mentality. We've been shaped by this. And it's important to understand the history that has shaped many of us. Many of us have grown up in this nation, and maybe our parents grew up in this nation. And an important place to start really is the Great Depression. The Great Depression, as many of you know from history, swept through the nation throughout the 30s. Uh, the, the stock market took a downward turn, just crashed October 1929, and as a result, financial panic uh, spread throughout the nation. In the momentum of the Industrial uh, Revolution, because of this, production went down, and because production went down, unemployment went up, and millions found themselves in financial crisis. There was a massive shift in, in the way that people began to look at two things and the relationship to one another, money and security. A significant shift in the way that Americans looked at money and security and the relationship with one another. And this was a generation that was trained to take very little and make it spread out very far. Uh, I remember spending time at my grandparents and seeing the sort of contrast. Of, uh, my, my grandfather was a successful businessman, uh, inventor. He came from a, a well-off family that, by and large, was not significantly impacted by the Great Depression. He was part of a small remnant that was not and so Papa had a taste uh, for the finer things, okay? He liked to spend money. He flew airplanes. Uh, it moved them to live in a country club. And for a, a portion of my childhood, I, I lived in this strange bubble. But my, my grandmother, on the other hand, was raised on the polar opposite side. She was raised in an impoverished, poor, air, rural area in Wisconsin. Her mother died at six years old. Her father looked at all these kids that they had and said, I can't do it. They were all put up for adoption. She found herself as an orphan when orphans used to be a thing. Uh, was raised in the foster care system or 
I can't call it care, but the foster system of the time. Uh, she tells stories that would blow your mind. And uh, so she learned frugality, both of them surviving the Great Depression era. And I'll never forget seeing the contrast when me and my brother would come and, uh, s- and stay the weekend at their house because we would come in through the gates of this beautiful country club, pass you know, whatever hole of a, of a golf course that was on the senior PGA tour. We'd turn left, we'd go down their court, we'd go into their beautiful house, we'd walk into the kitchen, and there in the kitchen we would discover Ziploc bags hanging upside down from cabinets. So some of you guys have seen this in your grandparents' place, right? It didn't matter how much they had. Ziplocs were still washed and reused. This is also the home where I learned, unfortunately, that if it's yellow, let it mellow. And if it's brown, flush it down, okay? It, it, and I'm scarred by that. Now, we like, like yell, like, what are you doing leaving that in the toilet? Um, but this is where we learned, you know, these, 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 these things. It was so interesting to see this contrast between both of my grandparents. The, my grandma was, by and large, shaped uh, by this, this, this Great Depression era. By and large, uh, the scarcity mindset has been wired into our nation. After the war, uh, World War II, economically drew our nation out of the Depression, what economists found was that our nation was still a little bit too thrifty. For the prior 15 years, we, our nation, had been taught and conditioned to not spend. You don't spend anything. Whatever you get, you live on. And so no one wanted to spend money. And so marketing agencies got together in, in... the hopes of really forming ideas and narratives that would leverage the scarcity mindset and the mentality in a way that would actually cause people to start spending money and stimulating the economy in a way that led to mass consumption. And it dawned, really, that dawned the, the, the uh, common day marketing. You, you've probably seen it uh, highlighted in the show Mad Men. And uh, so what, what they did was they leveraged the scarcity me- mentality and started to convince people that you are not whole. You are not you. You are not a complete person. You are not a complete man. You're not a complete woman unless you own XYZ, unless you smoke Lucky Strike, unless you drive a Volkswagen. Like, you are not whole unless you have this in your life. So the, the, the narrative shifted from hoarding, hoarding, hoarding to spending, and began, uh, the nation began to not only now hoard, but to spend beyond their means. And so people went from living on 70, 80% of their income to living on like 108 to 110% of their income. This one's for free. If you spend more than you make, you're in trouble. Okay? I don't know if they told you that. And so consumer debt increased and on and on and on. And here we are almost a century later, and we read something like this here in Scripture. That people, it wasn't about people spending beyond their means, but what Paul is describing here is people giving beyond their means and begging earnestly for the opportunity to give. Think about this. Begging him for the opportunity to give. And we are thinking, what the heck? This is so weird. I don't even have a framework for this. And for some of us, our guards are up. This is not my first rodeo. I've taught on giving before. I see your faces. You're cinching, you're defensive, you're checking your wallet, make sure it's still there. We get defensive, we start to freak out, Uh, we're thinking this is crazy, we're thinking this is otherworldly, we start to think through excuses. Why? Because we've been shaped by a narrative. You and I have been shaped by a narrative. 
an abundance mentality that leads to a life of generosity and giving and financial sacrifice, the kind that is clearly displayed in the early church, the kind that is expressed throughout the scriptures. It's just not naturally our shared narrative. We are disciples, by and large, of a scarcity mentality culture. But here's the good news. Like the early church, the Christian community, that's, that's you and I, are a people who have been brought into, by God's grace, a greater story, a more compelling, life-giving story, one that brings a deep sense of inner security that does not depend on our finances, thanks be to God, one that brings a confidence in the abundance that has been offered to us through God's Son, Jesus Christ, and one that even brings freedom to be able to give regularly, sacrificially, and even, God forbid, cheerfully. It's a story of God's redemption and renewal. And it's a story that we as God's people need to continually find ourselves within. I heard it said recently that you can understand the entire Christian narrative through the lens of giving. So here it goes. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth and everything that fills it. And in a great act of generosity, God pours his creative, giving love into the world. And there he puts humanity within his creation to enjoy it and to cultivate it. Man and woman are not created because God needs anything, but rather out of the abundance and overflow of who God is, existing eternally within the Trinity, God says, let's share what we got. And so he creates he places man and woman within it. And what we see from the very first pages of Scripture is in the world, this is a world where the economy was built on giving. The economy that God created, the economy that God designed, the world to flourish within was an economy of giving. He says, all that is mine is yours. All of this is yours. Enjoy it. Cultivate it. He says, just this one thing I command don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything is yours. The world is your oyster. Just don't eat concerning this tree. And so what do we see almost immediately? The serpent comes in, and what does he say? God's holding out on you. Isn't that interesting? The world is yours. The devil says, you can't trust him. He's holding out on you. Yeah, yeah forget this whole, like, the entire cosmos is yours thing. What you really need is this. What you really need to be satisfied and to be whole is this. And what Genesis 3 shows us is so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she, emphasis mine here, took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And so this is interesting. We're introduced to a new idea here in the biblical narrative. The idea here is take. This was a creation that was designed to flourish through giving. But here in the garden, what we read on page three is that through sin, humanity begins to reverse this trend by taking. And when take became the sort of counter narrative, this additional narrative now woven into the human experience, humanity began to unravel. We read that 
Adam and Eve took of the tree. We read of in Genesis 4 that Cain took Abel's life. We read on in Genesis 6 that the sons of God saw the daughters of man and took them, and on and on and on. Stealing, greed, injustice, withholding, hoarding, extortion, jealousy, financial manipulation, human trafficking, it all entered into the human experience as a result of taking. When we reverse the trend of giving, our world breaks down. But God, amen? But God, being rich in mercy and generous in nature, sought to rescue humanity. And in a way that is totally fitting of God, he would do it again, and once again, through giving. How would the world-unraveling pattern of taking be overturned through giving, duh, <laughs> through giving. The most famous passage in all scripture, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he what? He gave his only son who, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Humanity would bring death into this world by taking, but God, once again, brought life into this world by giving. And specifically, by giving his best. Christ Jesus, we sang about it in our first set of worship. Christ Jesus being the ransom for our sin debt. Jesus paid it all. Every last penny. Giving is the means by which God changes the world. Giving is the means by which God continues to change the world. And listen, giving is the means by which God is changing you. It's the means by which God is transforming our world, our history, our eternity, and our lives today. A conversation about Christian generosity hinges on a conversation about the God whose image we bear. And that is a generous God. Here's what you need to know this morning. You can never outgive God. You can never exhaust God's generosity. You can never deplete his willingness to give, and you can never earn his favor. It's grace. God is a generous God. It is who he is. And not only is God a generous God, but as we read in Scripture, he is sacrificial in his generosity. Look at me in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. What an exchange. What an exchange. Christ, who was rich, becomes poor to meet us in our spiritual poverty, to make us co-heirs with him. This is the God whom we've been made to reflect in our creation, and this is the God whom we've been redeemed to reflect in our salvation. This is a kingdom, the kingdom of God, that operates on giving because the king is a giver. And this is the kingdom that we belong to. This is our kingdom. This is our home. This is our allegiance. This is our eternity. And this narrative of giving is to be constantly shaping our lives and our community. Randy Alcorn put it this way, Jesus is the model of sacrificial giving. If you stare long enough at him, you'll become a giver. And if you give long enough, you'll become more like him. This is the plan for us to stare into the generosity of God 
and by beholding Christ being transformed from one degree of splendor to the next, and as we step out in faith to give confidently that the Holy Spirit is going to sanctify us and make us more like the Son, Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do is I want to lay out a few principles. That was kind of an intro, but it was like kind of like two-thirds of the sermon. Uh, I know a little bit, you're like talking about finances and going along, you're pushing it today. Okay, so a couple principles about giving. The first is this, giving acknowledges that God is first. Turn to your neighbor and say, God is first. God is first. It gives me time to drink. Verse five. And they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Giving is designed by God to be a practical declaration in our lives and a continual reinforcement of the preeminence of God. What does that mean? Well, let's look at Colossians 1. Colossians 1, speaking of the very Son of God, Jesus Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That in everything, every area of our lives, Christ might be first. So here's the question you've got to think through this morning. Is he first in your life? Not like faith is important to me. Or faith is a really special place in my life. Is Christ first? You may be asking, well, that seems subjective. How, how will I know? Actually, the Bible gives us some really practical ways to know. Check your budget. Check your spending. More specifically, consider your giving. You, you knew it was coming. I mean, it was going to get a little bit awkward. <laughs> we declare that God is first, not only in our singing this morning, but in our giving. We can confess that we believe that God is first in our words, but what we, pro we prove that we believe that he is first through our giving. That's the proof. J. Hudson Taylor once said that Jesus is Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. He's Lord over every area of our lives, or he's Lord over none of it. Giving has a unique way of clarifying who is Lord in our lives. And so for those who seek to put God first, to put Christ first, the Proverbs actually instruct us how to do that. Proverbs 3, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruit of your produce, with the first portion of our earnings. Why? Because God is first. Why would I give the first portion? Because God is first. The Old Testament lays out some premises for this. It gives us the premise of tithing. We see it in uh, the Torah. We see it in Nehemiah 10, 35 through 37. We see it in Malachi 3. Now, some of the theolo uh, theology police are already ready to pounce and say, wait a minute, Old Testament uh, command here. Jesus himself in Luke eleven forty two 42 reaffirms it. 10% of our earnings to God. You'd be hard-pressed to have any biblical warrant to, to, to find something in the New Testament that says that the Christian now should give less. What we believe now is 10% is not the ceiling for our giving, it's the floor. 
It's the starting point. It's the beginning. And so when we commit to give first fruits, it means that we sit down with our budget and we say, I'm going to plan on making God and his purposes priority in my life. And here's why. If you're like anything like me, I don't trust myself to do this casually. I don't just trust myself to do this casually. I trust myself to spend (laughs) and maybe save, maybe. And maybe to pay off those debts or those student loans or whatever the case may be. And then we see what we have left over for God. Let's be honest, that's what we do. We spend, we spend, we spend, we save, we pay off, and then we look and we see what's left for God. And first fruits giving reverses that trend in a way where we say, we're going to withstand this pattern in my life. I'm going to give first because God is first. I'm going to be intentional in this. Secondly, giving is taking part in God's provision. Verse 4, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Giving in faith is an active participation in God supplying for his people. God supplies for his people. How? Through his people. As we give, we're providing for the leaders of the church. As we give, we're providing for the ministry of the church, for this like beautiful building that God has blessed us with. God blessed us with it. Guess how he blessed us with it? Through you. Through you. I would love to get that check in the mail. That was just like, here's a billion bucks from God. Love God. See you soon. BRB. We haven't gotten that one yet. <laughs> I've, I've heard testimonies of that, and we are, you, we are praying for that together. Uh, but God, the, the, the normative means by which God provides for the church is through the church. It's how uh, we provide for the needs within this church. So we have a diaconal relief fund specifically allocated for those who are members of this church that find themselves in financial difficulty for the deacons to be able to step in and say, let us pay that bill for you. It's how we provide for missions overseas. So 10% of our giving here, we allocate the first 10% of our tithes, we set aside and tithe as a church, and we send it outside these walls. We supply missionaries like Sazanta Patra in India. We supply uh, church plants like the New Reality Church Plant in Honolulu. We, we support domestic missions like InterVarsity and so on and so forth. We send the money out. It's how God is providing for the work of ministry. It's also for how he provides for mercy ministry within our city. Michelle and I have experienced uh, a wide variety of financial situations. When we first got married, uh, we didn't have any you know, kids, and we were living that dual-income life before the recession. So any of you that can remember, those were, those were some good times. <laughs> and then, sw- uh, swing on the pendulum, uh, we, were, we were overseas uh, living on 100% uh, don- donors, uh, at the mercy of God through donors, with, without the ability to actually work because we were overseas and we had a religious worker visa. And so we, we, we've seen uh, some different financial situations. And uh, I'll never forget when Michelle and I moved back to, to Stockton, we were trying to get on our feet, and we were in this strange place where um, we, we qualified for some services, but we didn't qualify for all the services, and we were just flat broke. And there were times where we uh, didn't even know how we were going to make it, literally. And one of those days when we were you know, stressed out about how we were going to make ends meet, we're sitting down, the kids are to bed, it's quiet in the house, and we hear... The, the mail slot. And, oh gosh. So we hear the mail slot, we go over, and someone had dropped 
um, a grocery card, gift certificate card, <laughs> in, in the mail slot. And it was like exactly what we needed for that day. And here's the beautiful thing. I, I, I don't know who did it, and I don't want to know. If it, was, if it was one of you, please keep it a secret. But here, here's what I, here, what I do know is not only did God uh, provide for us very practically through the church, but whether that individual knows it or not, they built into our family a, um, a dedication to be generous individuals. We, we, were, so, we were so marked, or, or so impacted by this generosity that we, we set out to, to be generous people as well and to allocate a, a benevolence fund, essentially an amount of money in our budget that goes above and beyond our tithes to this church that would be set aside in order to help and bless other people in the church. And for sometimes it was for, for those who were really, really needed it. And other times it was like, hey, let's just bless someone, take them out to dinner or whatever. But something specifically budgeted, benevolent, but budgeted to just simply be able to bless God's people and to be that, that, that conduit of God's blessing to the people around us. And again, I will never know who that was, but they have left a legacy in our family. They've left a legacy in our family. Mirslav Wolf said this. We are not simply the final destination in the flow of God's gifts. Rather, we find ourselves midstream. Some of us, the mindset needs to shift. We are not the cul-de-sac of God's blessing. It does not stop with us. We are the conduit of God's blessing. Coming to us, and flowing through us in a way where we become the means of providing for the needs of the church through our tithing. We become the means of providing for missionaries and parachurch, uh, parachurch organizations through our offerings, and we become the means of justice in our city through mercy ministry and caring for the poor. God is providing the, for the needs of his people through you. What a privilege. Amen? Amen. Third, giving is a test of genuine love. Paul is, Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's passing through these churches in Asia Minor that he's planted over the years. And what he's doing, he's asking them to collect a one-time gift in order to help their sister church in Jerusalem. He wants to come through, be able to take those finances and bring it to Jerusalem to help them. And he says this in verses seven and eight. But as you excel in everything, in speech, and sorry, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, in all um, in, in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Speaking of giving, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. So again, I, I need to mention this. The Christian does not give to gain favor with God. Grace is unmerited, demerited favor. You can never earn it. You can never buy it. Don't try to give to get it. Okay? But what we see in Scripture is a generous life is the litmus test of grace in our lives. I can't vouch for a non-generous Christian. You know what I mean? Like I, I can't search the Scripture in order to find something to vouch for a non-generous uh, Christian. I don't think they exist. There's a scene in the Gospel of Luke where John the Baptist or baptizer, he may have been Presbyterian, I don't know. Um, he's, wow, okay. So he's, um, he's baptizing, that's what he did, and around the, the area of the Jordan, and he's declaring forgiveness and the salvation that's coming through the Lord, and he says this in Luke 3, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. In other words, prove by the way that you live 
that you've repented of your sins and turned to God. And so there's these three groups that come to him. It says, first, and the crowds came and asked him, well, what shall we do? Again, not to get God's favor, but to prove. And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. That's what he says to the crowds. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, well, what, teacher, what should we do? He says to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Group two. And then group three, soldiers also came and asked him, well, what shall we do? And he said to them, don't exhort, uh, extort money from anyone uh, by threats or by false accusation. Here's the kicker. Ooh-ooh. Be content with your wages. Three very different groups, three very different financial situations, probably three very different tax brackets, but with all of them, he addresses their finances. Isn't that interesting? Why? Because nothing gets to your heart and really reveals your heart like money. How do we know that the gospel has gotten a hold of our heart? How do we know that we are bearing fruit in accordance to repentance? How, how, how do we prove that we are God's children by the way that you treat money? And the way that you treat money has been radically shifted. There's a visible shift in the way that you earn, save, spend, and even give. Fourth and finally, giving benefits the giver. There's a story of a renowned artist and uh, also a believer who's still alive. His name's Makoto, uh, Makoto Fujimura. When he and his wife were first married, uh, they were extremely poor. They were barely making it. And he shares this. He says, one evening I was sitting alone waiting for Judy to come home to our apartment, worried about how we were going to afford rent and pay for necessities over the weekend. Our refrigerator was empty, and I had no cash left. Then Judy walked in, and she had bought and brought home a bouquet of flowers. And I got really upset. And he says, how could you think of buying flowers if we can't even eat? I remember saying frustrated. He says, Judy's reply has been etched in my heart for over 30 years now. She says this, we need to feed our souls too. We need to feed our souls too. The logic that many of us have is I can't afford to give right now. I can't afford. I can't afford to be generous. But what our souls are constantly reminding us and the scriptures are telling us is that we can't afford not to. We can't afford not to. The Christian is someone who realizes that giving is a matter of the heart and a generous life leads to a healthy soul. Look at what the Apostle Paul says in verse 10, and this matter I give, and in this matter I give my judgment, this benefits you. Can you hear those words? This benefits you. This is something Every single one of us needs to settle today. For the child of God, the believer, you need to settle this in your heart. This benefits you. This is for your benefit. The scarcity mentality would cause you to see giving as a liability. The scarcity mentality would cause you to be defensive when the Bible talks about giving. The scarcity mentality would cause you to start making excuses. The abundance mentality would cause you to see giving as an asset. The abundance mentality would cause you to believe the words of Jesus when he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. This benefits you. No. St. Augustine said, God is always trying to give us good things, but our hands are too full to receive them. So maybe your financial problem today isn't that you have too little, it's that you have too much. 
Paul would ask Timothy, warn those who have too much. Maybe, again, maybe your, your financial problem is not that you have too little, but it's that you have too much. And it's only as we learn to release our grip from our stuff that we come to discover the blessing, the life, the joy, and the freedom that God has offered us in Jesus Christ. In fact, I would go as far to say, as to say that giving is the means by which God allows us to experience his freedom in our lives. God desires for you to experience the freedom that he has secured for you through Jesus Christ. And the means by which you are going to experience that is when you release your grip from your finances and you give it away. Matthew 6, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And this is interesting to me. Of all the things that Jesus could have said, sex, power, pleasure, vice, fill in the blank. He says money. Why? Because nothing has the power to direct your heart and has the power to enslave your soul like money. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your heart is tethered to your treasure. And there it follows. He describes it as a master in control of your life. He says, you can either submit to God's reign, or you can submit to money's reign, but you cannot serve both. And it's not just a should not sort of statement. You should not serve both. It's you can't. You cannot be under the reign of God and the reign of money at the same time. But that puts us in a dilemma, doesn't it? So what does God do about this dilemma? He calls us to give. He calls us to give. Kent Hughes put it this way, every time I give, listen to this, I love this. Every time I give, I declare that money does not control me. Perpetual generosity is a perpetual de-deification of money. When we give, we are saying, you don't own me. You don't own my future. You don't control my life. You don't control my decision-making. You don't control my emotions. You have no claim on my life. I belong to God in Christ. I am not yours. I am not yours. Like, think about this. When was the last time that you consciously thought to yourself, thank you, God, as you were giving, thank you, God, that you are freeing me right now from my idolatrous love of money and its enslaving power over me? Whether we know it or not, this is exactly what God is doing for us. Why? Because he loves us. He loves you. Friend, he loves you. And he wants your freedom. God desires your freedom. He does not need your stuff. He's not desperate for your money. He is jealous for your freedom. And he knows that we are not going to experience it as long as we're living for the dollar. And God has welcomed us into a very freeing path of being a church that is marked by giving together. Amen? Amen. At this time, what I'd like to do is call up Karen Compeace. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to get into a few brief question and answers and uh, just kind of see how God has applied this to her life and the life of her family. If you guys would give... Karen, a round of applause. Thank you. Can I get a stool today? Um, 
Okay, so tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, the way that you serve this church. All right. So um, my name is Karen Campis. Um I am the wife of the drummer, Dax. Um, a mother of two amazing kids, Dax and Zoe. Um, I'm a school teacher. I teach adults. Um, yeah, that's about it. Um, at Reality, I serve on the financial board, which um, it's like on a day that we talk about giving, you have somebody from the finance team come and talk about um, their Total coincidence. <laughs> Um, and I just, I, I love serving on the financial team. Um, I love the opportunity to um, pray, constantly pray um, over how our church um, can just be the best stewards of the finances that we receive from you. Yeah. Ready for the next question? I think so. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey uh, of giving? Yes. So, um, I think first of all, though, I just want to say that being up here in no way makes me um, some kind of giving expert. Um, I am not at all like don't think of me as like, oh, she's got it all together. I don't have it all together. I don't I don't know if anybody out there has it all together, um, but I'm no. happy to share my journey. So I grew up in the church and um, giving was part of something that we just um, did. And um, I have to say that it was quite reluctant as a youth, and it grew to be kind of reluctant as I became an adult and made my own money. Um, I didn't really feel, um, I don't want to say I didn't feel the need to give, but it definitely was not out of um, joy. It was out of more like, this is my obligation. Um, when Dax and I became parents for this first time, I think was probably the first time where we truly felt um, the blessings of God. And, and it changed our lives forever. So, so basically what happened is um, that boy that's sitting in the third row right there, when he was born over 17 years ago, he had um, a heart that was really um, messed up. And he came out blue and... Um, he needed to have open-heart surgery right away. Um, he couldn't have open-heart surgery right away because an MRI revealed that he had had an aneurysm. And so Dax and I, um, big Dax and I, um, for about three weeks um, held our, our baby, um, and the baby was taken from us. Little Dax was taken from us and given back to us and taken from us. He kept crashing. Um, for about three weeks, we didn't know if he was going to make it. And there was a point in all of this, and the reason why I'm going through all of this is because there was a point where I had to come to the end of everything that I knew as Karen and put all of my faith in God. And, and through that process, I knew that God had me, and he had me no matter what the outcome was. Like we were blessed, our boy is here and he is okay, but um, that there was just this time where I knew he had me. He had me, and he provided everything for me. Um, and because of that, I I can give generously. I can give everything that I have. Um, do we all the time have it all together? No, 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 no. We don't. But. I can honestly say that we know that just Christ is holding 
holding us, um, looking out for us, and, and our finances. Does that yeah, make sense? Totally. I feel like I'm rambling. No, from that place of like deep trust God provided. Yes, yes. yes. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. No, yeah. <laughs> you want to keep yeah. going? No, I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I could go. That story is a long story. So if anyone wants to know, just come ask me later. But um, Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Oh, there are probably people here today that feel um, that they can't be generous givers. Like they, they just can't. And maybe they don't feel uh, they're in the job that they had hoped for, or their finances aren't properly in order, or they have student loans, or some other factor. Um, how would you encourage the believer who is under the impression that they can't give and give generously? Well, um, first of all, don't, don't wait until you're in a better place. You're never going to be in that better place. Um, Ask all the older people out here, right? Like, you just, there's never a time where you have it all figured out um, until you put God first. Once you put him first, um, things will fall into place. And um, I have a passage that's just kind of been speaking to me since you asked me to talk about this, and it's kind of interesting that it comes right after one that you just shared. Um, So this is from Matthew um, chapter 6, starting with verse 25. And um, this is something that just is a reminder for me um, that God has us. Hold on. I had to borrow Dax's glasses because I forgot mine. Okay. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you be worrying, worrying by worrying at a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow, is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Thank you. Great job.